Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Megan here, and this is the final episode of 2021. It's going to be one of those solo episodes where instead of having a guest, I just talk to you for a little while. I'm going to offer some thoughts about the show, how it's going, how I feel about it, how I feel about life in general these days. But before that, a few items of business. The first is that the deadline to apply for my next personal essay and memoir masterclass on Zoom is fast approaching. The deadline is Monday, December 20th, and you can go to daummasterclass.com to learn all about it. The class itself will run for eight consecutive Mondays, January 10th through February 28th from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. This is a small workshop, so space is limited. But if you're looking to workshop an essay or part of a memoir, any kind of narrative, literary nonfiction, this might be the place for you. I'll emphasize this is not a video course. This is a live Zoom class taught by me from my home with my dog Hugo walking around in the background. So you really get your money's worth. Again, check it out at downmasterclass.com and apply by next Monday, December 20th. Second item, not that this is earth shattering, but this episode of The Unspeakable is the first one in a while that is no longer part of the Podcast One network. As you may recall, I moved the show over to Podcast One back in August with the idea that they would help me with marketing and promotion and most of all, find some sponsors. As I may have gone over before, there are two kinds of ads in podcasting programmatic ads, which are the pre-made ones that sound like radio ads that come barreling in at the top of the show and often in the middle of the show. And then there are the far classier host read ads. The idea was to try to find host read sponsors for me while running programmatic ads for a while. While the programmatic ads were intolerable to me anyway, and Podcast One, despite carrying some shows I like a lot, shows not totally unlike this one, just pretty clearly wasn't a great fit. So as of now, the show is hosted on the Libsyn platform. This changes nothing about the show or the way you get it. You just won't see that Podcast One logo on the show art in your app. And the art has been changed slightly it now says The Unspeakable with Megan Daum. That's just to help people find the show a little more easily. And instead of that photo of me, there's a photo of the classic nuanced AF coffee mug. By the way, that photo of me that has been part of the show logo this whole time was taken by the one and only Jonathan Kay of the Quillette podcast. Uh, he snapped that photo of me when I was a guest on that show a few years back. Anyway, now we have the nuanced AF coffee mug. But other than that, the show is exactly the same. And we are in the 65th episode, I believe. I can't believe it's been nearly a year and a half of doing the show. Um, I can't believe it because, for one thing, I still feel like a total beginner. You may have heard me talk last summer about something I called the tyranny of the mid-career pivot. It was a solo episode where I spoke with pretty brutal honesty about how hard it's been to adjust to the new creative economy and how Gen Xers are maybe especially screwed or at least especially challenged because 
uh, for among other reasons, we're not social media natives. And a lot of us hate the idea of self-branding. And that's pretty much the name of the game now, branding yourself. In that monologue, I said something to the effect of this. I said, I'm 51 years old and I've never hustled so hard in my life as I have over the last few years, professionally speaking. I have never worked so many hours so unrelentingly and still felt so unmoored, so overwhelmed, so clueless about how I'm supposed to be going about doing my job. After almost 30 years in the same career, I've never felt like more of a beginner. A lot of the overwhelm I was referring to there has to do with the work I've put into trying to grow this podcast so that it can actually make some money. It's been four and a half months since I put out that solo episode. And I'm sorry to tell you that since then, the overwhelm has only gotten worse. In fact, sometimes it's like, I feel like I have actual body contusions from flinging myself against the glass wall that seems to lie between actually getting this podcast monetized and whatever it is I have been doing. So here in no particular order are things I have tried over the last year in an effort to make money from this podcast. I created a YouTube channel, the Unspeakable channel. And the thought there was that I would post video interviews that were a whole separate thing from the podcast and that the videos would be partially available for free on YouTube, but you'd have to join the Patreon if you wanted to watch the whole thing. This was also a way of getting my beloved and devoted Patreon supporters some bonus content for once. What else? I created the Nuanced AF merchandise line, of course, since every podcast should have merch. And again, I could offer the patrons discounts. A few months ago, I traveled several thousand miles to a weird sort of ideas conference I'd been invited to where tech people and venture capitalist types and a handful of creative people had a sort of three-day brainstorming session about... I'm not sure what, but I thought maybe I'd find some billionaire funder who wanted to underwrite the podcast. And uh, yeah, finally, um, for about 10 minutes a couple weeks ago, I decided that the key to making the podcast work was to turn it into a cryptocurrency venture. The show itself could be an NFT. Anyway, spoiler alert, none of this worked at least not in terms of bringing in revenue. Not that it was a waste, not at all. I learned a lot of things. I really enjoyed getting the chance to do a slightly different kind of interview in the video format. The Tech VC conference was really interesting and as fun as it was weird. The merchandise, needless to say, is amazing. I've never looked that hard at how much it's actually making for me, but that's partially because I love it so much, especially that nuanced AF baby onesie that I don't really care how much it's making. As for my Patreon supporters, they are not only my sole source of revenue for the show, they are, um, if our biweekly Zoom hangouts are any indication, just really great people, really stellar company. There's a group of us that meets every other Sunday or so. And if this gang is any indication, the listeners of this show are some of the most insightful, thoughtful, generous, funny people out there in podcast listener land. 
I've even had several guests go on to become Patreon supporters. They loved being on the show and they wanted to support it and join our community. That alone, in my opinion, makes this podcast qualify as a success. And so despite the Sisyphean struggle to earn money from it, I really do consider the show a success. Now I'm really going to level with you. I'm going to talk about how many people are listening to this podcast. This may be a tactical mistake, but hey, why quit now? Here we go. On any given month, an average episode gets between 6,000 and 10,000 downloads. And from there, almost as many listens. And that's big. People are not only downloading it, they're listening to it. The most listened to episode of this show, the August 22nd interview with Sam Harris, has just under 37,000 downloads as I'm speaking to you. That is, objectively speaking, good. Really good. There are, depending on how and when you count, roughly 2 million podcasts out there. Apple Podcasts has more than half a million active podcasts in more than 100 languages. Again, it depends on where and how you get your numbers, but most of the data shows that most podcasts get fewer than 150 downloads per episode in the first 30 days that the episode is up. So if your episode gets 3,500 downloads, you are in the top 10% of podcasts. If you get 9,000 downloads, you're in the top 5%. I've also seen 9 to 10,000 downloads put someone in the top 1% category, but I'm being conservative here. So that means that this podcast is firmly in the top 5% of podcasts in terms of downloads. Since launching 15 months ago, it's been downloaded somewhere in the neighborhood of 600,000 times. That's a success. Now, let me tell you what else 600,000 downloads is. A failure. If you want to make podcasting actually work for you, and by that I mean not make you rich, but make it part of your work, part of your livelihood, if you want, to use a phrase everyone seems to use now, kill it in this space, the space meaning your area of interest, the top 5% is not enough. Not even close. That might sound shocking or implausible, But when you're swimming in a sea of 2 million podcasts, the top 5% means the top 100,000. And I highly doubt there are 100,000 podcasters out there paying their rent or even their electric bill with money they've made talking into a microphone. Fair enough. But here's the thing for me, and I'm being really honest here. A handful of those podcasters are more than paying their rent. And that includes some hosts that cover many of the same things that I do, who are interested in a lot of the same things I am, shows that have some of the same guests that I do. Some of the hosts have even been guests on my show. Not to put too fine a point on it, but those shows are wildly more successful than this one in terms of downloads. And by the way, I'm not talking about Sam Harris. Sam is wildly more successful than just about anyone Now, some of these shows have been around for a long time. Some are about the same age as my show, and some are quite new. And by the way, I'm not naming names because the specifics don't really matter as much as the overall psychological effect I'm trying to describe. Some of these shows are interview formats. Some have more than one host and kind of just shoot the breeze. Some do a combination of both. These shows are great. I listen to them regularly. 
I've supported them on Patreon. I feel a little spark when they pop up in my podcast app every week. But I'm going to be mortifyingly honest with you and say this. Sometimes that spark feels like touching a hot stove. There have been moments when I see that a show similar to mine has dropped a new episode and I almost want to drop my phone. I hate admitting this, but it's sometimes painful for me to listen to these shows because of how much better they're doing than my show. I hear the hosts reading ads. I see their supporter tallies on Patreon. I notice them booking guests that I, for whatever reason, haven't been able to book. And I feel professional envy. And let me tell you, it's a lacerating kind of deja vu. I'm going to back up a few decades now. In the early to mid-1990s, when I was starting out in my career, and by that I mean my writing career, I struggled a lot with professional envy. I was surrounded by ambitious, talented, in some cases, highly connected and well-resourced people. And every time one of them got something I wanted, a book contract, a prestigious magazine publication, even an unprestigious magazine publication... I would be beside myself with envy and insecurity. When Lee Stein was on the podcast a few weeks ago, I shared the story of being in graduate school, my MFA writing program that I had gone into massive debt to attend, and just about losing my mind when my hero, Joan Didion, my all-time hero, and her husband, John Gregory Dunn, walked into the classroom one day as visitors to the workshop. The idea that someone was going to get their essay discussed that day, someone other than me in front of Joan Didion felt almost physically intolerable. I was certain that having an audience with Joan Didion would make all the difference for this aspiring writer. As if Joan would sit through the workshop, make a few light suggestions, and instead of going straight home afterward, carry a copy of the manuscript directly to her editor at the New York Review of Books, who would agree, based on her endorsement, to publish it immediately. My problem wasn't that I lacked confidence in my abilities. I knew I was a good writer. I was just terrified that there was some sort of insurmountable and totally unfair barrier between me and the recognition I felt I deserved. I was afraid I would be unfairly overlooked in favor of people with more financial resources or better social connections or whose stories had more commercial appeal than mine did. By the way, after that interview with Lee posted, I got a message from my friend Amy from grad school who'd heard the episode. It turned out she was the one whose pages got workshopped in front of Joan Didion that day. In the festering ferment of my distress back then, I had blocked out that detail. And guess what? She did not miraculously land in the New York Review of Books. Anyway, my point does not have to do with Joan Didion or writing workshops. My point is that there was a period in my life where my professional envy of others felt almost debilitating at times. I remember one time, and this is dark, I remember having to go to a party to celebrate someone's book publication, someone exactly my age, which is to say 25 or something, and taking a perverse comfort in the fact that that morning I had skinned my knee quite badly from falling while I was out running. And the stinging pain from this injury was such that the stinging pain of jealousy toward this author 
And from there, the pain of my self-rebuke and shame at being jealous was somehow numbed. I remember dabbing my knee with rubbing alcohol before getting dressed and thinking, this is nothing compared to what it's going to be like to stand around eating canapes and pretending to be happy for this author. (laughs) Of course, the party ended up being fine. Once I got there, it was just another party. And later that year, or at least within a year, I got my first break and had a prestigious publication that led to an agent. And almost instantly, my professional envy disappeared. Now people were envious of me. And while it would still be a long time before I had any kind of financial stability, my fears about spending the rest of my life banging on a gate that was never going to open quite wide enough for me to slip in just kind of dissipated and more or less never came back. Until now. Those fears are back now. At some point over the last several months, as I lurched from one half-baked yet overwrought podcast-related effort to the next, it dawned on me that that feeling of touching a hot stove wasn't some new variant of baseline existential anxiety, but instead the return of a malady from long ago. For the first time in more than 20 years, I had professional envy. It felt not only awful, but fundamentally wrong, as if teenage acne had erupted on my face after decades of quiescence. It felt utterly beneath me, but also constantly in front of me, like spraying into my eyes some kind of vapor of solipsistic distress. I felt bitter about my perceived lack of success with the podcast, but not nearly as bitter as I felt about the bitterness itself. I was supposed to be past this, above this, bigger than this, too old for this. One of the few consolations of aging, after all, is perspective. Having apparently lost all natural forms of it, I tried to manifest it by mouthing the words. Good God, Megan, your podcast is in the top 5% and you're complaining that it's not in the top 1%? What about all those poor people whose podcasts are only in the top 20%? Do you hear them complaining that they can't land a Casper mattress host read? My God. There are people sleeping on the street right outside your front door. Asylum seekers freezing to death near the Polish border. Some of them without podcasts at all. Grow the hell up. I try to be grown up about this. Nonetheless, just about every day at random intervals, I find myself sorting through the reasons that my podcast isn't killing it in this space. Is it because I can't do my own editing and therefore can't turn an episode around quickly enough to respond to the news cycle? Is it because even if I could do my own editing, I wouldn't want to do a show responding to the news cycle? Is it that I don't do enough social media promotion? That I don't get into enough arguments online? That I don't get into arguments with my guests? Is it that I'm too old, too much of a known quantity and not enough of a fresh face on the scene? Is it that I'm not well-known enough? Am I too Gen X, too obsessed with being Gen X? Does my dog make too much noise in the background? Do I need a co-host? Maybe the dog should be a co-host. Maybe he should just take over as the host. Imagine that, a podcast hosted by a dog. It's really not a bad idea. So why isn't the show growing at the rate I'd like it to? The answer, at least with respect to the possibilities I just listed, is all of the above and none of the above. 
The answer to whether I can do anything to fundamentally change the podcast's reach is the answer to 90% of all questions. Yes and no. Some things I could do that would probably, not definitely, but probably give me some more traction include things like leaning harder into culture war issues. I could bang on about cancel culture every episode rather than every third episode. Now, that might sound curious to some of you, since some people are under the impression that this show is entirely about the culture wars. I've had potential guests tell me they're afraid to come on the show because it would somehow tar them as, if not problematic, then at least problematic adjacent. But I've had other people tell me that the show doesn't come down hard enough on wokeness, that I'm a squish, or at least an apologist for squishes. I'm squish adjacent. They might be right. I do have a habit of apologizing every time I use the word woke, or at least making it clear that I think the word is reductionist and dismissive and not really all that useful anymore, despite it rolling off the tongue in a uniquely wonderful way. So maybe I should knock those apologies off. Maybe I should make sure to use the word woke at least several times per episode. Maybe I should have named the show after the jokey working title I had for my last book, Woke Me When It's Over. As you may have heard me say here, my book, The Problem With Everything, was at one point going to be called Woke Me When It's Over. Now, my agent thought this was a great title that would sell a lot of books. I thought it was a great title that was ultimately beneath me, or at least beneath the seriousness of the project. Not that the book's not hilarious in places. And here's an interesting thing. As it happens, this podcast is named after another book of mine, The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion. That book came out in late 2014 and arguably contains some of the most emotionally complex and brutal and polarizing material of any of my books. I write about things like the legacy of bitter mother-daughter relationships in my family, about not wanting to be a mother, but trying to talk myself into feeling otherwise. I write about almost dying from a freak illness and not becoming a better person afterward. I even suggest, and this is probably the most unspeakable thing in the book, that Bob Dylan is overrated. Actually, that's not a suggestion. It's a declaration. It's true. He is overrated. Even Joni Mitchell said so. And there's a whole piece in the book about my relationship with her. Anyway, this is my point here. The Unspeakable podcast may be fueled by the same kind of critique of ideology that fuels the problem with everything, but the spirit of the Unspeakable podcast is closer to the spirit of the Unspeakable book. And that is not a book about the culture wars. It's a book about how engagement with the culture causes little wars within ourselves. It probably came out at the last possible moment a book like that could come out and be celebrated by wide swaths of the literary world. There's stuff in there that's far more politically incorrect, so to speak, than anything in my last book. But nonetheless, it got rave reviews. It won awards. I won awards because of it. Roxanne Gay gave The Unspeakable a positive review in the New York Times. Mostly positive. There was one thing she didn't like. But still, did you hear that? Roxanne Gay liked that book. Moreover, she was allowed to like it. Her fan base didn't mind. In fact, they expected as much. It seems almost unbelievable now, but Roxanne Gay and I used to have a lot of the same audience. We swam in the same waters, 
and the waters were warm enough and vast enough that there was room for all kinds of swimmers, bobbing along in all kinds of ways and having no real desire for anyone else to drown. Today, there's just everyone in their own little swimming pool, or maybe a few private clubs where you know exactly what kind of people are going to be in the pool. I'm not going to pretend not to take part in that. I'm a social animal. I enjoy the benefits of having a tribe as much as anyone. And insofar as the tribe I've come to be associated with is fixated on fighting tribalism, I reserve my right to complain periodically that the very existence of this tribe defeats its purpose. But I don't want a country club swimming pool for a podcast. I want my show to be an ocean. Okay, that sounds totally pretentious. I want my show to be a really big lake. I want it to be a body of deep water that we swim around in, where there are many points of interest around the perimeter. I don't want it to be some barely fathomable sea that separates continents. So I guess what I'm saying is that I'm okay with this show being a little bit of a failure. I'm okay with it being in the top 5%. That's not to say I'm done fighting to help it reach more people, but I am no longer going to fight with myself about what I could be doing differently. I'm not going to question the values I hold most dear about this show, even though those values may be part of what keeps me from killing it in this space. I know my chances of killing it would go up if I raised the volume on making fun of wokeness. I strongly suspect that if I turn this show into something entirely devoted to dissecting gender ideology, I could double my numbers. I see the downloads the show gets when I cover that topic, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to continue to have the conversations I want to have with the people I want to have them with. And if those aren't necessarily people with big social media followings or seasoned podcast guests who make the rounds of shows like this, well, even better. You can meet new people here. You can come here for people that I've invited on, not because they're famous or promoting their latest project or prone to epic rants that I can turn into social media assets, but because... I simply just wanted to talk with them. And as overwhelming as it sometimes feels to keep doing this show for so little monetary return, I am not stopping anytime soon. The day I stop doing this show is the day I run out of people I want to talk with. I cannot adequately express my gratitude for all of you who listen every week and who've brought me here to the top 5%. I want to thank my Patreon supporters who make me a liar when I say I don't earn any money from this show. Thanks to you, I can pay my outstanding editor, Myra Ortega, who I've never met in person, but who now must have a sixth sense about what I want and can decipher my nitpicky editing notes without missing a beat. I want to thank David Perez at Talking Silkworm Productions, who handles all the technical details. And after working tirelessly to move us over to the new network last summer, didn't complain once when I said we were moving off that network. I want to thank my web designer and in-house, out-of-house graphic artist, Scott Schaefer, who has been instrumental behind the Nuanced AF merchandise line and who helps me maintain a veer of professionalism. As a writer, I don't really have a long track record working with others. And these three put up with any number of annoying habits. I'm probably not even aware I have. I want to thank, once again, the Patreon subscribers who've been coming to our Sunday night hangouts. I'm not kidding when I say that I look forward to getting together every other week. 
at the risk of ruining the intimacy, I will remind you that you too can be part of the group by going to patreon.com slash the unspeakable and joining at the mid-tier level or higher. That also gets you discounts on your first purchase of nuanced AF merchandise, which you can get in time for Christmas. If you hurry, Hanukkah has already left the station. Joining at any level gets you early access to the show, ad-free versions of the show. If you can't join right now, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to apply for my writing workshop, even though it has nothing to do with the podcast, you can go to daummasterclass.com and apply by December 20th. If you want me to shut up, you're in luck because the show will be on holiday hiatus until January 10th. Lots of cool guests on deck. In the meantime, I wish you a happy, safe, and most of all, super nuanced holiday and new year. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.